0: Um, when a number of years ago I heard the story of a young man who was weeks before his own wedding and he was walking across campus with a, with a, a Jewish Ph.D. friend of his and a uh, friend looked at him and said, so you excited about your wedding? And he said, yeah, well, you know, 20 plus years is kind of a long time to wait. Well, the Jewish friend just froze in his tracks and looked at him and said, well, you mean this is going to be your first time with your fiance?" which my friend sheepishly looked and was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> and finally, the man, after the man froze for a moment, he kind of relaxed and said, oh, that's right. Your religion thinks that sex is evil. I've always been fascinated by that story because how was it that this individual had made it into his sort of cultural uh, lexicon of encyclopedic knowledge of Christianity that he would have come away with the impression that, sex, that, that Christians think sex is evil? How did he come by that? Maybe that's the message that the church is sending. But if it is, I tried to convince you two weeks ago, and I'm very grateful for Foster uh, and for his standing in my place next, last week, even though he's far more attractive than I. I just Let's own it, right? What a, what a terrible sight you have to endure now compared with Foster last week. But I tried to mention to you two weeks ago that the Bible is overwhelmingly pro-sex. From cover to cover, really, In Genesis chapter 2, you have naked Adam looking at naked Eve and reciting love poetry to her. You are now flesh of my flesh, he says. At the end of the book of the Bible, in Revelation 19, it all ends in a marriage supper of the Lamb waiting for the great consummation. And tucked right in the middle, as a matter of fact, you have this Hebrew love poem called the Song of Solomon that includes passages like this in chapter 7, verse 7 and 8, where the man says, "...your stature is like that of the palm." And your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the tree, I will take hold of its fruit. It's in the Bible. You have a man who's excited about being involved with his wife in the marriage bed. And there's actually plenty more where that came from. The reason I mention all this is because I don't think that there's any room for prudishness about sex among Christians. The prude is someone who is just easily shocked by even the mention of sex because of propriety or decorum. And I'm granting that sometimes the sexual climate around us seems so threatening that retreat from anything sexual may be tempting. But I also think that we're in trouble if we start getting a little holier than the Bible is when it comes to talk about sex. That can't be right. But I think it's precisely because of the beauty of sex in the Bible that the Bible places around it guardrails. God puts guardrails around sex because it is the most delightful and therefore the most dangerous of human capacities. He understands it; it's intended to be an otherworldly experience. But in many ways, it's also like I heard Tim Keller say one time, sex is very much like fire. Kept self-contained, it can warm and purify. But if not, and it escapes, it can burn, injure, leave permanent scars and destroy. So with sex. And so God cares so much about sex that he warns us not to misuse it, not to distort it. And so since we looked first of all, at the Bible's view of sexuality two weeks ago, we now need to look at sexuality corrupted. How is it that in our way we are wrestling in our particular time with distortions of the Bible's approach to sex? And here's the thing. I've identified five of them, and there's no way I'll be able to get to any kind of in-depth discussion of any of them. But my hope is, that you'll figure out before it's all over, to begin a discussion. That's what I'm hoping for, is to start a conversation, right? So, five distortions of sexuality that we face. I want to deal with them with a scripture passage in each as we dive into it. Number one, I think we have to mention marital sexlessness as a first distortion. Let me read something before I dive into this. 1 Corinthians 7 3 through 5, Paul says this The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." I, it comes as a, a, a surprise to a lot of people when I mention it, but you realize in addition to the c- coronavirus pandemic, we've had an epidemic going on for about 10 to 15 years, according to researchers, of sexless marriages. Uh, couples who engage in sex, according to researchers, less than 10 times a year constitute about 15% of American Western marriages. 10% of that, the, that group reports having sex maybe once every six months, sexless marriages. Now look, I approach a topic like this with great caution because I realize that there's a myriad of issues. Some of those issues are medical. Some of those issues are emotional. It should actually make us very hesitant to try to start to quantify this whole question of what is normal when it comes to marriage bed celebration. And not only that, you have a lot of couples that are perfectly satisfied with where they are. And there's no biblical reason to upset that card. And I also want to avoid sort of heaping shame upon people who honestly have legitimate difficulties regarding sex due to factors beyond their control. None of those do I intend at this point. I just want to draw attention to a very simple fact that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 makes a shockingly egalitarian statement about sexual ownership. When he says, it's entirely mutual. Now, this sounds common to our age, but in Paul's day, it was radical. Sex was very much the purview and the ownership of those people who had power. It was an exercise of power and only left with the exclusive privilege that had it. But Paul comes in with a nuclear bomb and says, actually, it is completely mutual. Neither male nor female in marriage have a greater right over the other person's body. And he goes on to talk about unnecessary deprivation as a way of avoiding temptation. Look, I just want to mention this to say simply this. The marriage bed is one of the most natural places to begin talking about the health of our marriage. It just is. And perhaps exploring the ways in which oftentimes in marriage you settle into patterns and expectations that could potentially be harmful to one another might be a good idea. In other words, maybe it's about the communication of marriage, not necessarily about arbitrary numbers we're attaching to frequency. So marital sexism, we have to at least mention that because the Bible mentions it. Secondly, though, we have to deal with the question of verbal obscenity, very briefly on this one, because the Bible talks about it. <clears throat> if you remember from our study, through Ephesians last spring, we talked about Ephesians 5, 3, and 4, where Paul says this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let, them, let there be thanksgiving. And his point is, anybody who abuses sex, jokes about sex, or joins in with those who abuse sex has no, here's the phrase he uses, inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Okay, now look, since we did the study through Ephesians back in the spring, as I'm sure you all remember, that word inheritance ought to ring some bells, right? Because when we look back there, we realize that inheritance is a loaded word for Paul. In chapter 1, verse 18 of Ephesians, Paul actually says that God himself has an inheritance. And you know what it is? It's in the saints, That is, God, in the book of Ephesians, sees when he looks down across his people and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross, he sees something that makes him feel wealthy. That's his inheritance. What's the point? Paul uses the word inheritance every time he's talking about intimacy. So follow the logic there, right? If in the way that we talk, in the jokes that we tell, in the references that we make, if we're making light of God's most vivid symbol of intimacy in human sexuality, how then can you hope to expect to have intimacy with the object of that symbol in the presence of God? Well, Paul doesn't mix his words. You won't. Look, Christians, for that reason, have always been the ones in a culture who have a holy reverence for sexual talk. But that doesn't mean that we don't ever talk about it. It just means that when we do, we speak in terms that celebrate its power and honor the beauty that God has associated with it. That's where we are. Thirdly, though, we get the obvious, what I would call, adulterous unfaithfulness. That's the most vivid distortion of human sexuality. And I want to unpack this using a proverb in Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 18, where King Solomon is talking to a young man, and he says this to him. He says, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Okay, now look, that word there translated forbidden Some of you in other translations, as you may be looking at them right now, will have something different there. Some of them will say, uh, with a strange woman. Others will have the translation with a foreign woman. That's actually the most literal translation. Now look, do not go where you may think that's going. The Bible does not, and by the way, does in no place, forbid mixed race marriages. Let's purge that from any of our own cultural lexicon. (laughs) That's not what this verse is saying. What it's saying is, is that anyone who is not my spouse is foreign to me, sexually speaking. It's outside. It's strange to me. What does he mean? Well, think about it this way. Let's say that you decide that you want to dive into the deep end of a swimming pool. And at the bottom of that pool, without any scuba equipment on, you decide to take a deep breath. You'll very quickly find that that environment is foreign to you. Not there. It's not it's suitable to you. It's strange to you, to use the Proverbs writer's voice. In other words, marriage in a marriage relationship is not made for invaders. It's not welcome to interlopers. Adultery is as alien to your soul as water is to your lungs. That's what the Proverb writer is saying. It's alien to you to do so. Now, why am I going through this? Well, because I think that when you frame the question this way, it helps you realize how often the feeling of adultery is just the opposite. Look, the unfaithful, they talk about insatiable desires. They talk about how desperately they need to feel true to themselves. We talk about the years of frustration that are pushing me to it, any of which may or may not be true. But you recognize that in that very moment... (laughs) God is contrasting what I feel with what he knows to be real. And that is, that that thing, that alienation, is a deadly experience. Betrayal doesn't just bring hurt to the person who is betrayed, but also to the betrayer. It is alien to you. It is foreign to your experience. I kind of find framing infidelity in that way means that, you, that it may be that we can deal with our temptation in a different way. Look, you may this very morning be wrestling through an idea of an affair. That's a fair assumption. What do we do with that? I think oftentimes we find ourselves with prayers that go something like this Oh, Lord, please, 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 take this desire away if you don't want me to do it. Isn't that funny how we put it on him? <laughs> if you would only take away this desire. How, how could I say no when I feel this way? But what if we rephrased that and we said something instead like this, Lord, show me the end of this desire. Show me as vividly as you can the death that awaits me there. Bring me into a knowledge of that. <clears throat> and maybe unfaithfulness will have, have a different motivation uh, in that regard. Number four, the fourth way I think in which we distort sexuality is through Pornography or as the New Testament refers to it, porneia. And honestly, I, this, this, this land has been so well-trod that I don't want to sort of uh, move past it. If somehow you've been in a cave and you don't understand the proliferation in our culture these days, I got nothing for you. Well, I do have one thing for you. <clears throat> Came up with some information this summer that apparently during the height of the shutdown back in the spring, pornographic website called Pornhub reported that during the pandemic, every five minutes, their servers transmitted more data than exists in the entirety of the New York Public Library. So yeah, it's prolific. Beyond that, the other thing I feel like is well-trod soil is just how much we're discovering about how shame affects the people who find regular use of it. And there's reasons for that that I'll get to in just a second. But we oftentimes find, find people engaging in it who, for whatever reason, even if they feel so carefree and jovial about it, that it roots its way in there with embarrassment and shame on the inside, probably due to the fact of its proliferation and the nature of that particular, uh, act, those particular acts that they're looking at. And honestly, I've made some arguments in other places about how often people who are trying to work their way through a struggle with pornographic addiction or otherwise will oftentimes try to use the very shame that they're feeling for the action to help disincentivize them from ever doing it again. And it never works. In other words, the more you try to fight that fire with fire, it just blazes all the more. We know this. There's no success in fighting shame with more shame. Which makes me think that maybe we might take a different tack. Is it possible to maybe sort of carve out a different sort of uh, um, way of approach when it comes to dealing with this struggle? Because I hope that you've noticed that as we've been going through this three-year sort of trip through hope, home, and healing, we've tried to mention that the Ten Commandments do not simply have application to you an individual Christian's life. Rather, we know that, that, that the commands that God gives have indeed a social dimension we're not just worried about individuals and how they deal with their lust and adultery. We look also at the way in which it impacts the world around us. Mostly as it affects our wrestling with oppression and injustice. Let me give an example. From Psalm 82, you have this, this uh, litany of, uh, of spiritual powers who the psalmist accuse of promoting oppression. Look what it says in verses 2 through 4, Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That is the temperature of the Old Testament. It is not just talking about your individual piety. It is talking about the way your piety begins to impact the world around us and it mostly has it to where Christian's eyes train upon the people who are being hurt. We look for them. A Christian looks for the people who are suffering at the hands of systems around them that bring them oppression, searches for them. And so perhaps we would do better for our own souls by reminding ourselves how painfully exploitive the pornographic industry is, especially to the women who are employed in its production. I read somewhere online, someone who had done some a massive research, uh, Dr. Gail Dines, who said that 90% of the pornographic videos available online contain some combination of degraded, de- degrading physical or verbal aggression, almost always directed towards women leading one anti-pornography activist to say something that I thought was profound. He said, I'm not interested in a world where men really want to watch pornography, but resist because they've been shamed out of it. I'm interested in a world where men are raised from birth with such an unshakable understanding of women as living human beings that they're incapable of being aroused by their exploitation." I'm ready for that conversation to sort of go in that direction personally, even as I wrestle through it as a community together. Fifthly and finally, I think we we, we haven't been fair if we don't at least look at the topic of homosexuality as a fifth distortion. And guess what? There's no way in three minutes to introduce this at all. But I do think that the LGBT movement uh, in the last, what, decade, decade and a half has won the battle in popular culture to destigmatize uh, uh, same sex erotic attraction. Um, and I think, in large measure, the strides that have been made by that particular movement are due to the way in which they framed this discussion around a civil rights struggle, right? Uh, for anyone who would sort of want to question the assumptions underneath that movement, oftentimes we're warned at being on the wrong side of history. Do you really want to be that group that sort of oppressed this particular community when it comes to gay and lesbian sex normalization? And actually, I may surprise you here for a second, because I think actually at least that little voice can be heard. I have some affinity for this, because I don't think that there's any society that can get away with maybe not thinking for a while about how important civil rights are and how much they need to be protected. So much so that there is no Christian... (laughs) under any circumstance, that should ever not only not advocate, but even stand aside when violence or bullying is directed towards same-sex couples or same-sex attracted people. Ever. Regardless of how we come to an understanding of human sexuality in different ways, every Christian has to honor the unavoidable fact that every single individual from the gay and lesbian community are created in the image of God. And that fact establishes that they deserve our honor and even a baseline human protection because of it. Now, I know we want to argue about what those baseline human protections are. Fine, but we can deny the fact that inappropriate behavior, violent behavior, is never appropriate under any circumstance. Now, however, it does seem important to say at the outset that our denomination to which Christ, <coughs> the Presbyterian church, belongs The Presbyterian Church in America has has, um, rejected, I guess is the best way to say it, the attempts by some present theological revisionists to make the Bible not condemn homosexual practice. We've rejected that. On the contrary, we believe that the consistent witness of scripture is that the act of sex is reserved always and only between one man and one woman in the covenant bonds of Christian marriage. And it is a long study for another day. But I'm happy to do as much. That in the four places in scripture that forbid homosexuality, they are Genesis 19, they are Leviticus 18, there's Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, we find a clear pattern of condemnation of homosexual practice as well as an affirmation that the act indeed represents a reversal of God's design for human flourishing. That's where we stand. And I realize... That for many of you, and who knows? I didn't know what generation you're in. I don't know how that sounds. But for a lot of you, you're thinking to yourself, wh- "What? How did we make it in here?" You're one of those churches, and very quickly you may label us as oppressive, hate lo- hate speech loving. I don't know, right wing wackos. Who knows which, what caricature we'll get? But I simply want to make an appeal to those who retch against this simple idea. That, I, that as, I, as I've lived in the history of this church, I'm amazed at the remarkable willingness of this body to accept anybody in its fellowship who comes here thinking that life may not be working for them. I'm talking about Christ Presbyterian here. I'm amazed at this fellowship and the richness that they've been able to offer. And so I simply want to say this. Is there anyone from the community who wrestles with their views of, of, of the LGBT movement who's willing to have a conversation just to talk about the fact that this is not because anyone hates you. This is because we have legitimate theological questions that underpin what it means to thrive in human sexuality. Does anyone want to have a conversation? I, for one, have been encouraged by a lot of people in the LGBT community here in Oxford that are willing to do just that. I'm thinking very specifically of uh, my dear friend J.D. Shaw and his podcasting effort, that he has had uh, with Jamie Harker, the owner of the Violet Valley bookstore down in uh, Water Valley. The name of the podcast is called Help Me Understand, and I warmly commend it to you. It's a wonderful way in which people are finally just sitting down and having a conversation and not just throwing missiles at each other from across a cultural divide. It can happen. What if it did? How would things change? Which brings me to my last point here that I need to wrap up with this, and that's simply this. I realize that when I launch into even those five simple things, there's no telling the kind of ocean of shame that rises up when we start to wrestle with it. Is there any healing that we can look for? I think there is. In Genesis chapter 2, you know, Moses tells us that our first parents, when they were introduced to each other, they were naked and unashamed. But in the very next chapter, in chapter 3, after they sinned, After they pulled themselves out of alignment with God's purposes, it says that their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked. You know, from that time on, the theme of nakedness is this biblical idea of shame. You see it all through the rest of the the scriptures, a testimony towards it. So even before we start here, we have to own the fact that as we dive into whatever sexual dysfunction we're wrestling with, this will not be an easy fix because it goes down into our souls. You know, the three-step plans, you know, and like praying for a spirit of purity just to kind of take us over. Those things don't work. We're looking rather for wisdom. I'll give you a little teaser for the, for the spring. We're going to look at in the spring when we talk about the Sermon on the Mount, about why it is that Jesus in Matthew five twenty nine through 30, says, Look, if you're wrestling with lust and struggling that way, you need to pluck out your eye or cut off your hand lest it cost you to sin don't panic. The church very early on outlawed self-mutilation. That's not what we've ever understood Jesus to mean. What I think he does mean, though, is that there's always an adjustment of the eye and an adjustment of the action. That is, when I'm dealing with my lust, I have to go and begin to change the way I'm seeing it. I've got to see it not as just some sort of naturalistic kind of hormone-motivated impulse, but rather that I'm worshiping in that moment. I'm setting up something as a God, and that's got to be questioned. But secondly, he challenges my hand, my actions. I've got to change the way that I do things, the the places where I go, the habits that I keep. And now you can see the genius of Jesus' wisdom. He says, look, if all you end up dealing with are the actions without a change in perspective, you're going to frustrate yourself and get moralistic. But if all you have is the change of perspective and don't want to bother your actions, you're really naive if you're going to make any progress. Stay tuned. Next spring, we'll try to dive more into some of the wisdom that Jesus hands there. But look, I simply want to to leave us with one simple thought. And that is, but what do I do with my shame? Barring whatever journey I have in front of me that leads me towards sexual purity, what do I do with this sense of shame on the inside? Well, can you consider this one little fact? In both the book of Matthew and Mark, those two gospel writers include a little detail in their account of Jesus' crucifixion that I find curious. They both mention that when Jesus was crucified and beaten, he was done so while he was naked. And you read that for the first couple of times and you're like, why did you have to throw that detail in there? Isn't it enough that your fallen Lord had to subject himself to what he did and now you got to throw that little nugget in to, I don't know, make it worse? Unless both Matthew and Mark had a reason for mentioning that because they understood that as Jesus is going through his passion, he is stripped naked to show the world that I am here to bear your shame. Jesus is not just dying for my sins up on the cross. He's dying for my identity. And there's nothing quite like a sexual past, a sexual present, to make that sort of shadow everything that I am. It can suddenly be the only voice inside your head that you think dominates your character. And Jesus says, yes, but up here, I'm bearing the essence of your character. I'm owning it. And my, and my father's gonna kill me for it. You wanna know why? So that once he crucifies it, he can bury it. And then he can neutralize it. And then he can raise it again into newness of life. So that no matter where you find yourself sexually this morning, no matter what kind of history you have, no matter what kind of actions you've got, maybe even the things you may be toying with even now, there's hope for one who comes and bears that shame and walks us through it. Man, don't you want that? I do. Let's pray. The Lord Jesus, give us the grace to see Because sometimes our eyes can be so clouded by by so many things that we've been doing and thinking and mulling over and stewing about. Father, I pray that you would give us your sight. Your word is so powerful. It lays itself right in the middle of all of our questioning and all of our justifications and all of our lame reasons we offer up and just says no adultery. Lord, if you would give us the grace to see clearly this morning and see a little bit of hope that indeed you are the God who doesn't just condemn, but you redeem. If you could do that, Father, we would be transformed because of it. We ask it all in Jesus' name.